This is Let Me Sum Up, your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'm delighted to be joined by my two co-hosts, the fantastic Frankie Muscovich. Hello, Frankie. Hello, Luke, and I'm coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. And noted recreational axe thrower, Tenant Reed. G'day, Tenant. An axe to throw, but not an axe to grind. <laughs> <laughs> We've already won the episode and we haven't even started. On this week's show, we'll dig into some fascinating work from the International Renewable Energy Agency that examines how we move all those promising but pesky hydrogen molecules around. But, Tenant, I think we should acknowledge at the outset that this is an episode out of time. We are recording it some weeks in advance to deal with some scheduling challenges, which means our new regular segment, Energy Crisis Corner, is less hard-hitting analysis and more speculative fiction. What do you predict will be happening in Australia's energy system when this episode is released at some indeterminate point in the future? Uh, I think I'm going to need to make increasingly wild predictions and a diversity of them to cover the field. So let's see. Uh, Are we uh, burning copies of old energy white papers from successive governments to keep ourselves alive through the winter? To be fair, there's a very Uh, significant stockpile of them in the National Reserves. A lot. (laughs) A lot indeed. Are we saluting our new giant ant overlords who've emerged from deep beneath the earth at our moment of maximum (laughs) energy vulnerability to take over at last? (laughs) Who knows? All this and more could have happened by the time this episode goes to air. Our new Antonese government. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Auditioning for a role as Minister of Propaganda in the the Antonese regime. I, for one, salute our new Antonese overlords. Uh, Frankie. uh... (laughs) (laughs) I've got nothing. This metaphor, I'm the soldier ant that just keeps beavering away. My not-so-bold prediction is that we'll still be paying through the nose for energy in three to four weeks' time when this comes out. I like the ant apocalypse better than the energy apocalypse at this point. It at least seems more fun. More role for two-fisted adventures, uh, less role for furrowed brows when opening a bill. All right, uh, shall we uh, read a report? Hydrogen Calls. The siren song of hydrogen yet again. Now, we all know the role of hydrogen in decarbonising the global economy is the subject of intense interest, but there are some big items on the to-do list before we can unlock hydrogen's potential. Green hydrogen, hydrogen made by electrolysers powered by renewables, is currently very expensive to make. Indeed, a lot of the focus here in Australia has been on how to drive down the cost of production. However, transporting hydrogen at any sort of scale has its own technical challenges and runs the risk of being very expensive in and of itself. Enter the boffins at the International Renewable Energy Agency who have just released a technology review of hydrogen carriers which focuses on how we transport those pesky hydrogen molecules around. Frankie, you were 
texting Tennant and I about this report last Saturday night, which probably says more about all of our social lives than anything else. Uh, what got you so excited about this report? I'm not for one minute ashamed to be texting you guys well after work hours on such wonkish indulgences. I love getting texts about hydrogen. I live for it. You've just enabled a lot more, a lot more uh, after hours texting. Um, so I came to this paper with a uh, from very much on a tangential um, perspective, very self-interested, of course, um, coming from a, a building sort of gas distribution uh, perspective, because it made some really interesting conclusions around the merits uh, or not of blending hydrogen into existing gas pipelines. And so I was very interested in having a look at the report uh, for that particular perspective. And then I found myself really geeking out about ammonia. But I thought, the report was really good uh, in looking at breaking down, um, I guess, the, the different pathways uh, that are going to be possible uh, potentially for transporting hydrogen around the world, uh, you know, to, to facilitate global trade. And it really breaks it down, doesn't it? Like it's absolutely forensic. It, it, yeah. I mean, look, we're all wonks here and I felt <laughs> outnerded reading this report very quickly. Um, so I guess the, the starting premise here, uh, when we think about the total cost of hydrogen being delivered to a specific country, you could break it down into two components, right? Production and transport. And, and this report is looking more closely at transport and it compares uh, the, the cost of transporting hydrogen uh, by pipeline, so compressed gaseous hydrogen, with three different shipping alternatives. So bundling uh, hydrogen into different forms uh, via shipping. Those pathways were ammonia, liquid hydrogen and liquid organic hydrogen carriers because uh, we love acronyms, uh, L-O-H-C. What are we calling that acronym? LOC. LOC. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, as far as acronyms go, it's it's not one that really rolls off the tongue, is it? It also strikes me not the most compelling pathway, and so hopefully an acronym we don't have to say very much in the future. No, I mean, my early comments on ammonia are a bit of a spoiler alert because I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about <laughs> LOC because... Uh, <laughs> It's not one of the options that stacks up, uh, according to the, the wonks at IRENA. So yep. the, I guess at a high level, the conclusions were in the short term, ammonia and repurposing existing gas pipelines appear to be the best place to start in terms of most cost effective uh, opportunities for transporting hydrogen. And I, I and the other sort of context around this that's not talked about in the report too much, but is interesting is that. We should think about this in the context of the end uses of hydrogen. Mm. So transport of hydrogen is not the ultimate objective here, <laughs> but we're, we're to, what we're really so, talking about. No, I know I'm, I'm blowing your mind here. So you're, so you're saying that we're not trying to create a circular pipe of hydrogen right around Australia just for the... We like creating big things, Frankie. That's kind of what Australia is all about, a big, massive circular pipe of hydrogen. As just a tourist attraction sounds pretty compelling this to me. This is the point in the conversation where I ask you to moderate your expectations just a little about where this is going. All right, all right. Well, actually, I shouldn't because there's some really, I think there's a lot of good news uh, in this report for Australia in terms of the role that we can play in a global hydrogen yeah. trade. Um, but the, the point 
that I was trying to make here is that whilst transport of hydrogen isn't the ultimate objective here, we're talking about the transport of renewable energy from low-cost locations to where the demand centres are. And because hydrogen has a low volumetric energy density, so you need a lot of it to produce um, you know, to, to produce an amount of energy. So it's far less dense than even natural gas, for example. You need a lot more of it by volume to get the same energy output. So the, I guess the other consideration here as well is to think about not just how we transport hydrogen in in that format, but further transforming hydrogen into the final mm. form in which the energy would be used. So that includes things like steel, yep. uh, methanol, or or other um, sort of synthetic fuels used for aviation. So what it probably tells you is it's going to be cheaper um, because Australia has an abundance of renewable energy sources in solar, wind, and the like, uh, that we can manufacture hydrogen through electrolysis. Uh, But we could also, um, because we have lots of iron ore in Australia, manufacture green steel here, and it's going to be cheaper to transport green steel on boats. Transport the steel, which is, I'm so delighted that this is the the conclusion you drew from this, because that's exactly the conclusion I drew. This bugger transporting this stuff, let's just use it to make stuff here and transport that around the world. Well, well, now slow slow your roll there, guys, Uh, because this is is one of the frustrations that I had. It's not taking away from the content of the paper Mm. but there's a structural issue here which is that this is paper two of three and one I don't know where one is allegedly (laughs) it came out late last year but uh, where is it It, it, like I went looking for part part one as well and this is I if we can find it we'll put it in the show notes but um, Frankie were you able to track the the phantom part one of this paper down the title of it but to be honest you're lucky I read this paper and time for the podcast today, so I did not go on an extensive well, search people, for it. And you, gentle listener, are lucky too. I'm one of these people that feels profoundly uncomfortable if I go into a sequel without having having seen the first movie in the trilogy. Well, the, the, so- the first movie apparently summarises the second and third movies, and the third well, movie that, that isn't is done thing. yet, so maybe that's why part one isn't Findable. I think I think that potentially um, this is this is some weird jujitsu from the folk at, uh, at Arena to build the sizzle for part one of the report yeah. by releasing two and three first, yes. and then using part one, which would actually be part three, to summarise those first two. It, it, that is that is the only plausible explanation after spending far too long on the Arena website a couple <laughs> of months ago. Well, so the reason to bring it up though is that part three deals with. Uh, the global production costs uh, in different locations and presumably will be a source of some judgments about where it makes greater sense to be making making the the final product with hydrogen rather than shipping the hydrogen. And we'll, we'll really need to put it together. I agree that it it looks so expensive to ship hydrogen that you're going to want to use it as close as possible to the place where you make it. Uh, and, and they do say that um, exporters are going to need production costs that are um, half or less those of the production costs of hydrogen in customer countries because the costs of transport, the end point, for getting them down is about 
of the same order of magnitude of the cost of making hydrogen in the first place. So you you really want to minimise your transport need. You're absolutely right. Yep. And, and the other implication is you also you also want some significant sort of hydrogen production hubs, if I can call it like that, sort of dotted around the world because you do want to do two things in terms of uh, cost of transportation scale really helps and minimising distance really helps. So we're not it's not a scenario where, you know, Australia's going to be producing the world's hydrogen. Australia's going to be supplying, you know, ideally, you know, uh, places in our region that have a significant demand for hydrogen, places like, like Japan. Although given where gas prices are right now, they, they probably could buy hydrogen from Australia and it would look <laughs> about the same as gas from Vladimir Putin. And I found the geopolitics I, I mean, it, it wasn't a major focus of this report, but I found that really interesting as well. So we talked about scale being the like one of the key determinants of bringing the cost of transporting down. So we need the, the scale of the project in terms of the production to be as high as possible. And then, you know, also the, the transport distance, right? So the longer the, the distance that needs to be covered, the more some of the shipping options like ammonia that have a much higher energy density really start to stack up. And I thought that was interesting to think about in terms of the export potential for a country like Australia, where on the face of it, we are um, we are resource rich, uh, potentially, in terms of being able to produce uh, green hydrogen uh, from from renewable electricity, and then also those other end products. But then, where are the the likely markets for that? And what are the industries we need to be developing here in Australia? And that's when I started my uh, my rabbit hole kind of burrowing on uh, on ammonia and the the sort of um, very interesting prospects in that space. Shall we dive into ammonia a little bit? Let's do it, but not physically, because I hear <laughs> it's toxic and corrosive. At, a, at an industrial scale. I mean, if we were diving into a sink full of your commonly sort of sourced household cleaning products, uncomfortable, but, you know, perhaps not so dangerous. Let's not find out. No, let's not. No, no TikTok challenges on this podcast. <laughs> So this report finds that shipping uh, hydrogen in the form of ammonia is the most attractive uh, carrier for shipping hydrogen. And a big reason for that, and one of the advantages it has over the other ones, so the, the acronym that I will not bother to repronounce. LOKE. Uh, <laughs> as well as liquid hydrogen is that it's possible uh, to use ammonia directly as well. So we don't always have to think about producing green hydrogen through electrolysis, converting it to ammonia, uh, shipping the ammonia somewhere, and then reconverting that ammonia um, into hydrogen. Which is about 30 or 40% of the energy contained in the hydrogen, right? That, that end piece, so where we talk about reconversion of ammonia to hydrogen called cracking, where you need high temperatures to do that, can be anywhere from, I think, 13 to 34% of the energy loss mm. uh, contained in the hydrogen. So it's a lot. So there's like a very high incentive in all of this to think about expanding on, I guess, the existing infrastructure that we have around ammonia and its uses, because uh, 
uh, there's already a global trade around ammonia. It's already produced, stored and traded on a large scale today. I think about 10% of it is already traded globally. And we have um, over 100, I think 120 ports around the world have ammonia infrastructure. So, you know, there's already a market for it. Uh, so we should be thinking about then how do we leverage that. I was looking at the, the maps of where ammonia infrastructure already is around the world. And um, also one of the exciting things as well about the future pipeline of projects uh, around ammonia is that about half of the global project pipeline is in Australia. So we've only got, I think I could see on the map, maybe in the one location in Western Australia where we have loading infrastructure, we have more mm. unloading infrastructure in other parts of the country. So we're more set up for import than export at the moment. But we have an enormous pipeline of projects uh, concentrated, I think, in WA and Queensland. Uh, but, you know, that that's a really exciting prospect, isn't it? It's colossal. Mm. Um, that's I, I think it was something in the order of a uh, hundred million tons of annual production. From now, from a generous uh, uh, definition of project pipeline, like a, a, a lot of these things mm. have got no firm commitments uh, to them yet. They counted the media release, which have been falling like snowflakes in the hydrogen space sure over have. the last couple of years. Yes. <laughs> And the uh, it was a real contrast with the survey of the um, the committed or, or even press released uh, capacity for liquid hydrogen export because we did have that um, dinky little test liquid hydrogen export ship uh, dock in Victoria earlier in the year and take on a bit of hydrogen and take it uh, all the way to Japan. It's had a lot of people being very excited about it, but uh, this report really rains on that parade. It does. Uh, says it's not going to be competitive to, to ship liquid hydrogen beyond distances of 4,000 kilometres. And I looked it up this morning. Uh, Japan, uh, even from Gladstone to Japan, is more than 6,000 kilometres. Mm. So it's ammonia or bust. It's ammonia or bust, but there are some important I guess, pieces of the puzzle that still need to be resolved. So if we're talking about shipping ammonia globally, we also need to firm up, I guess, the technology around ships that run on ammonia as well. Mm. So it doesn't make sense uh, to put a bunch of ammonia on a ship and then have that ship use fossil fuels uh, to power itself uh, around the world. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The worst. I know. And here's where I about to blow both of your respective minds, because as it happens, I phoned a naval architect friend. As you do. uh, Who happens... (laughs) As I do. I just it just so happens that my best friend is a naval architect living and working in Singapore. And we have her on the line now. Well, not quite, but I did talk to her earlier today. Uh, because she's been looking at uh, the decarbonisation of the maritime industry, um, particularly looking at fuel source. And, and I, it is covered in the paper a little bit as well. But what, what I guess the, the important bit of the puzzle that still needs to be resolved here is that direct use of ammonia to power ships still needs to be de-risked. They haven't quite mm. cracked mm. that nut yet. Um, but they're expecting that to be the case within the next few years. So uh, my naval architect friend uh, said that um, there are 
several engine manufacturers working at the moment. They're doing bench testing and will have engines to install on vessels by around 2024 that, that are powered by ammonia. That said, it's not stopping companies from building ammonia-ready ships right now. So there are a lot of companies that have considered ammonia as a fuel in the design, but their vessels will need some retrofit, so down the track. So that includes the engines, it includes piping and the tanks to make it run on ammonia. But it is very much a thing, and it seems to be a growing consensus in that industry that that's where it's going. And as you say, the liquid hydrogen piece is either going to be short-lived or only for much, um, you know, shorter distances and, and more specific applications. Rockets. <laughs> Rockets were not one of the carriers uh, canvassed in this report. Well, that's that's a clear <laughs> failure of scope and imagination. <laughs> my, my respect for the wonks at Arena is, is plummeting. Frankie, I was expecting 15 minutes on gas pipelines and their future in, in, in a uh, hydrogen superpower scenario. Well, I'm ready to go there. Um, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we got the deep dive on, on ammonia and, and shipping, but, w- but what was your takeout for the, the future of uh, existing gas pipelines and, and, their, and their role in, in transporting hydrogen? When it comes to pipelines, for distances sort of below 3,000 kilometres, I guess, um, they are they, they're the cheapest option uh, and, it, and they get more attractive when there's existing infrastructure to repurpose, right? Um, and be, because of the, the nature of those projects, the lion's share of the cost associated with it is the capital cost of building the pipeline itself. So if there are existing pipelines to repurpose, then it significantly cuts the cost of those projects, like I think between 65 and 94% or something like that. So the, the way the report um, positions this, and we're talking about transmission pipelines here, right? Not not really distribution um, pipelines. Yep. So. Um, the, the bigger stuff that pipes it between cities or between countries or, or industrial centres, um, there was less commentary on the distribution side of things uh, in this report, which is to uh, individual users, households, businesses and the like. So the thing that stood out for me, which was interesting and sort of said effectively, it's different everywhere depending on what existing pipeline infrastructure You've got so you've got to do that as a case by case, case analysis, by case right? Basis. So you need to think about the key sort of challenges that need to be looked at are around the material compatibility. So the steel that's currently used in that, um, you know, how susceptible is it to hydrogen brittling? So um, you know, hydrogen being a small molecule can leak through cracks more easily, um, can cause uh, you know, an increased sort of frequency of cracking and stuff like that. So I'm definitely not an expert in that space, um, but that needs to be looked at. Um, there's also requirements around uh, compression that need to be considered as well. So at what intervals you compress the gas uh, and, and there's a suggestion that that doesn't neatly align with compression stations that are already in place for for natural gas uh, pipelines. So there's costs associated um, with making that conversion, I guess. What I was more interested in or the thing that um, brought me to this report in the first place was around blending. So, yeah. um, so the, the idea of... Uh, I guess, scaling up the production of hydrogen by injecting uh, an amount of it uh, into the existing gas grid. And the advantage of that, of course, 
uh, is that um, you can scale up production of, of green hydrogen without needing to factor infrastructure, infrastructure costs um, much into the project because you're just using the existing uh, gas grid there. Infrastructure costs for transport and use Correct. of hydrogen, right? Yeah, so we're talking about the pipeline. So they're already there. So we're really just um, substituting an amount of natural gas with, with green hydrogen. So I guess uh, the report is pretty strident in noting that there are lots of challenges around that and it really doesn't consider it a, a viable option uh, in the context of this report, which is around transporting uh, you know, green hydrogen as a sort of form of global trade. It talks about the limited uh, CO2 mitigation benefit from, from doing this. So if you're substituting out... I think they say most existing um, networks could take blending up to 20, perhaps 30% by volume because its energy density is so low. You're really only lowering CO2 emissions by about 7% if you do that. Uh, The other sort of significant part of this is that it has the potential to dramatically increase the cost of gas. Uh, So even on the most optimistic projections around the cost of hydrogen, uh, it's still much more expensive uh, than than sort of the existing natural gas. So by introducing that into the network, uh, potentially are also um, raising the price. Although uh, the report does reference the uber, uber cheap uh, natural gas in the US. So I was going to throw to Tennant what that, like, you know, if you were going to translate that for the Australian context, is the price impact, you know, so marked? There's the Australian context and then there's the context of bananas international gas yeah. prices and ha- how that then changes the cro- cost comparison because it seems like their, their sort of randomly chosen example they used was US $2 a gigajoule gas, which is not the reality that is mostly being experienced around the world at the best of times, let alone right now. Well, the spot price in the US is uh, it's been north of $7 a gigajoule mm. recently, uh, US dollars a gigajoule. So you're right. Like, they've got this neat little table where they're uh, comparing uh, escalating production costs for hydrogen and escalating uh, natural gas costs and what does each combination of those get you for the abatement cost uh, the the cost per ton of carbon uh, avoided by uh, using blended hydrogen in the gas grid and they start their natural gas price um, axis at one dollar and they end it at six dollars and uh, the natural gas price in Asia and Europe right now, and f- frankly, in Eastern Australia, is more like 30 to 40 dollars a gigajoule. Now, it's not going to stay that high for you know, the next 30 years, probably. Uh, and they are trying to make long-term comparisons. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they they slightly oversell the, the costliness of it. Also, of course, there's an argument. I mean, this is not really the focus of this paper, but uh, there is an argument for blending that is, well, this is just a way to soak up a bunch of supply while you're trying to scale supply to get costs down. Given the, the scope of the report, I actually found the the random commentary about the merits of blending a bit weird. 
Yes. Because it's not really the question that they've set themselves to answer. It's just like, I think that there might be someone sitting in arena and apologies if you're listening, but it just seems like you're not a big fan of blending. <laughs> I'm just going to sneak this in here. <laughs> this is my big chance. I mean, I, I think the people making that commentary are very much coming at it from that perspective. Although I would say, and I, I um, agree, like the, I think the, the point on cost is overstated, particularly when we're looking at the spot prices now. However, I think that the salient point being made there, though, is that um, we should not think of that as a strategy um, or, you know, a viable long-term strategy to mitigate the CO2 like emissions of, of natural gas. And I think the proponents of some of that commentary would argue that uh, people who want to continue blending uh beyond, you know, the more obvious reason in helping ramp up the production of green hydrogen for export and the like, is that it, you know, it prolongs the use of, um, you know, of, of that infrastructure for fossil fuels and perhaps delays the, the decision to to start looking at, uh, you know, other, other alternatives. I foresee more reports on this issue. <laughs> Inevitably. You read these reports and you sort of, if you're lucky, you remember sort of two or three big themes, right, in that you take forward with you. And I suppose um, I thought quite a bit about the importance of scale in terms of production, mm. um, driving down the costs of electrolyzers obviously being the key task, but it, it has reinforced me that scale is an issue also for, you know, driving down transport costs. And there's, Absolutely. And, and there's very significant sort of technical issues that will need to be resolved on, on that side of it. And they will only become viable once once we've got a lot of experience and that's going to be come with a lot of scale. Um, which brings me back to the question I always have with with hydrogen, which is who is going to be paying for all this super expensive hydrogen <laughs> for the foreseeable future so that we get to this bit later on, which I'm sure we need to get to. And, and I'm not suggesting this is not something we should be aiming for. It's just a question that needs to be resolved is that, we, that we've got this long period of expensive hydrogen being used somewhere mm. by someone and how that actually happens is something that I still don't quite have my head around. So uh, you're right that um, it's it sounds like a harder sell to people. Hey, use this really expensive thing because you using it will make it cheap for other people later. Uh, any volunteers to be first? <laughs> <laughs> but a that was the same story with renewables. Yep. And like, I mean, not to put everything on Germany, but Germany did stick their hands up and say. Us first. Well, in, in some ways, Germany's doing the same thing now, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're really sticking their chins out and really driving that conversation. And, you know, that there is there is a significant coverage and sort of half a page on just the investments and commitments, both on the supply side and the transport side, um, that Germany is, is making, transitioning to a, to a hydrogen economy. Um, one might expect that in the con- context of the current geopolitical situation, those those uh, investments might um, uh, become even even more significant, it, just from an energy security perspective, as apart from anything else. So that's an interesting kind of random element that that could actually supercharge interest and investments in this space. I, I guess I think that has implications for you know. I'd love for us to circle back on this more papers. Yes. Um, for a more fulsome discussion on end users and the, and the the relevant uh, I guess the relative merits of different pathways we're talking about here, because 
what was really interesting to me in unpacking the costs and then the en- the energy losses implicit in um, you know converting hydrogen to ammonia um, back to hydrogen and shipping it around the world is that um, if the end use of that is is just for energy production to power the grid of another country. Well, depending on where the country is with respect to where that production is, should should we be just running cables under the sea uh, to, you know, to transmit um, green electricity, uh, which is what's sort of happening in one of the projects up in the Northern Territory, right? But I think there are geopolitical implications for that as well yeah. um, through the establishment of infrastructure like that versus, you know, shipping routes, which are subject to change. I think... Uh I think we're going to really, like globally, have to feel our way through this to a to a significant extent. Uh, but, you know, in the interests of uniting all the policy arguments in one big mess, uh, this probably takes us to the question of uh, Australia's future submarine needs for defending shipping lanes. <laughs> it's all one big question. I did not expect us to end on uh, submarines and national security. Cue a fifteen-minute discussion about AUKUS. It's a logical arc, but and it's just it. I just found it really fascinating reading this paper. The sorts of questions uh, that that flowed on from it, and 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 the frustration with not being able to find the other arena papers that complement this work as well. Um, because there is like a much more complex discussion um, to be had on um, on the end uses and the cost of production of, of green hydrogen and where that's best set up, uh, looking at transport on its own is super interesting, um, but, you know, nowhere near close to the full picture, right? Frankie, this is simply uh, the Star Wars A New Hope of uh, hydrogen papers. You can look forward to the, the prequel trilogy emerging in some 15 years. Which will have uh, interesting ideas, but dreadful execution. (laughs) (laughs) Great soundtrack, though, Tennant. Yes, yes. (laughs) And then the sequel papers will be the same as this paper, but just with different names. All right. As always, we're closing out the show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Frankie, what have you got? Well, I wanted to learn from our mistake in our first episode where we ended things perhaps not so much on a a super positive note. And I wanted to share something really positive I came across building on our conversation in our first uh, episode around possibilities in the circular economy, I came across a really cool startup, uh, the brainchild of a pretty fabulous woman called Joanne Howarth. Shout out to you. Uh, Her startup is called Planet Protector Packaging, and she's basically introducing an alternative to using polystyrene for packaging different materials, food, uh, even um, even drugs and medicines uh, with packs made from wool. And it comes uh, from sheep's wool, uh, obviously sheep in this instance that have been bred commercially from meat. So that wool was going to landfill and she talks about uh, the fact that the sheep farmers were trying to sell that on markets, getting a pittance for it. Um, 
wool is, as we know, a natural insulator. We all wear it in the wintertime. Uh, so it's, you know, its performance is equivalent to the, the polystyrene alternative it is seeking to usurp. And in this case, I think we're on the side of the usurper. Uh, polystyrene is a form of plastic. It's obviously a real problem waste. Uh, not only uh, is it not really possible to, to recycle into many other things, it's also made of millions of those pesky little, I think what they're called, uh, monomers. But, you you know, if you look at it up close, they're these tiny little balls um, all strung together and they can find their way into oceans. And I think people uh, up north of us found that to be the case when the Brisbane River flooded earlier this year. And they saw millions of those wash up um, onto our shores. So this is an amazing initiative. I'm really interested to see what she does next. Apart from having, I think, at least 300 businesses sign up to her her Woolpack product, uh, she's also uh, got a government grant to look at setting up a wool processing facility uh, down in Melbourne that would allow for the sort of onshore scouring of the wools. That's when you clean it and get rid of impurities for its use. Uh, Historically, that's been done in China. So that's just really exciting and uh, a great piece of Aussie ingenuity I wanted to highlight here. It is really exciting. And you mentioned episode one and the uh, industrial decarbonisation paper that we we talked about. And it's a positive example of one of the things that I've been reflecting on in the the few weeks since we, we had that chat which is the amount of transformation that's going to need to take place in all these different supply chains and all these different parts of the economy that we touch. And there's virtually nothing that we interact with in our day-to-day lives that isn't going to be shifted. And this is, of course, not some blinding insight to the circular economy people, and it's something that I've been aware of, but it, that paper reinforced it to me. And, if, and you immerse yourself in, in something like that, and uh, it uh, reignites that awareness of uh, just how much we need to transform to, to get to that that net zero future. Dennett, what about you? What have you got for us? So I'm going to start foreshadowing a, uh, a report that's going to come out a little while hence. So well, this is like the, the blackboard in uh, Back to Future 2. Are we on? Are you talking about it's, it's in the future from where we are now or in the future from when this episode drops? Or are we on sort of parallel? It's in all the futures. It's far enough out that I'm very confident it will not be released by the time this episode is released. So March 2023, get yourself ready, get yourself psyched, because there's going to be a report recommending what the state of Victoria's emissions targets for 2035 should be. And this is going to be of interest, both if you're a Victorian, but also if you're not, uh, this is going to be the first Australian jurisdiction to get a recommendation on like what to do after 2030 and before 2050. Mm. And a lot of the issues that are raised around uh, attitude to 1.5, overshoot, no overshoot, um, the role of different sectors, the, the role of extra jurisdictional offsets, all of that stuff is very relevant to the questions that the Commonwealth's going to be asking over the next couple of years about its nationally determined contribution after the current 2031 and for other states thinking about uh, what they do too. So I'm involved in that review and I'm eager to read it, but I guess I've got to help write it first. Bit of a 
bit of a step. And no chance of any spoilers on our podcast? Uh, No, apart from uh, my desire to uh, just pluck a copy out of a rip in the space-time continuum and find out uh, what we're going to say. All right. Uh, Well, that leaves me, I suppose. I should say something about something. (laughs) What's your one more thing, Luke? What's my one more thing? An excellent question, Frankie. Well, look, we have a new government. We have a new energy crisis, but I I reckon, you know, our our long-term... Uh, task has not changed, which is driving down emissions in this in this nation. And uh, we know a lot about uh, the emissions reduction trajectories in different parts of the economy and for various fuels, um, but it's good to keep them on that heads-up display as we work our way through all these immediate and urgent issues, which is why I recommend our audience look up uh, the latest Australian Energy Emissions Monitor from Dr Hugh Sadler at ANU, just to get your bearings on where we uh, making progress and, and where we aren't. Um, the TLDR is that we're continuing to see electricity system decarbonisation driven by renewables. That continues to be a good news story, but um, our listeners won't be surprised to hear that we aren't seeing equivalent emission reductions associated with gas or petroleum. Indeed, they've been flatlining for some time, and I suppose what I'd say, it's going to be absolutely crucial to uh, to ramp up policy attention on those two fuels, as well as some of the the key sectors that have perhaps been left out of policy frameworks over the last uh, last little while. And with prices where they are, arguably the economic and environmental imperatives are converging for just such action to take place. So uh, watch this space, I guess. But inform yourself with Dr Sadler's excellent analysis in the meantime. Frankie, Tennant, anything else you want to uh, chip in on before we uh, bid our dear listeners adieu? Uh, we've we've covered it all. The uh, the future of hydrogen, uh, the dark political uh, slash uh, entomological revelations <laughs> of the, the true nature of power structures. Uh, that is our show for today. If you have comments, questions or something you want us to cover off on a future episode, you can hit us up on Twitter. Frankie is at Frankie Muscovich, Tenet is at Tenet Reed, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Let Me Sum Up in your podcast app of choice and you'll find this, the last couple and all future episodes at Let Me Sum Up top net. But for Frankie Muscovich and Tenet Reed, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. I, I gave you a, a positive story to end things on on a platter and you've gone back to the Antonisi regime to end this on. Well, it's, it's only a negative story if you're prejudiced against ants. Like, why don't they deserve their time in the sun? We're happily tarred with that brush. Fast forward two weeks when I'm trying to do this. What the f*** are we talking about? <laughs> Well, let alone when the uh, chitinous antennaed agents of the Antonisi regime come knocking on your door trying to find out where you got the information to reveal their long-range agenda.